it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 482 for April 14th, 2017. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, I'm welcoming back our host from last week for Chit Chat Across the Pond, Bart Bouchatz, with Programming by Stealth, episode 33 of X. Hey, Bart. Hey, Alison, it's nice to talk to you again. Um, actually, you instead of me being you on your show. And then me being you on my show. Oh, it was all very confusing. With security <laughs> bits. Yeah, we not only did time travel, we did human travel and everything. But really appreciate you taking it over while I was out of town. And uh, this is an episode Bart and I've both been itching to get into. And uh, we're going to talk about code testing. And I know that sounds boring, but it's really, really cool. Yes, and it will help you write better code more easily. Yeah. Even yeah. though it seems like more work, it actually saves you work. It's I've been doing a weird. tiny bit of this with uh, with Jill's help. And I, it, to me, it just really resonated as the only way to do this, so to write code. So I, I haven't done it with quite the rigor of what we're going to do today. So I'm looking forward to advancing my my uh, my chops on the whole testing front. Well, the other thing is from now on, it means when I set you an assignment, you can know whether your solution works because I will give you the tests up front. And then there's no, I wonder, is that what he meant? You know, you wanted to worry about my English. The test will go red or green. And if it goes green, then you did it correctly. And if it goes red, nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the things that frustrated me until Jill uh, taught me some of the test-driven development was when I would read your tests, I was in, it, it was clumsy to have to go back and forth to try to figure out what it is your test was supposed to have done. I'd get a result yes. from your test, but I didn't know was that the right result. And I'd have to go back and actually read the code to figure it out. And now with, uh, with test-driven development, you know whether it did what you wanted it to do. Yes, because your test runner will simply, well, literally it'll go, well, in this case, it'll go red or green and blue. Anyway, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's enough teasing. Let's, let's not do it to start with and do something else first, right? <laughs> Right. Uh, just just to say to the listeners, I'm still a bit under the weather, so my brain is twice as foggy as usual. Um, so if I ramble a bit, just stop me. <laughs> your your brain twice as foggy is still eight times clearer than mine on my best day. So good luck with that. But... Fair I hope so. Um, well, that sound, no, that doesn't sound right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, way, 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 way back. Many, many moons ago, we set you an assignment, which was based around using our date and time prototypes that we'd built up over many, many installments and actually using those within a web form. So we were bringing together our two tracks. We were working on web forms and we just learned about drop downs. And then we were working on JavaScript and we just learned about exception handling. And so I asked you to create a little web form that had room drop downs for inputting the time in terms of hours and minutes, and then the date in terms of day, month, and year, and then to use the functions within our prototypes to print out the date and time. So it was .international, .european 12-hour, .european 24-hour, .american 12-hour, and .american 24-hour. And then if someone put in an impossible date, like, say, the 31st of February, is obviously incorrect, it should give some sort of sane error message using the error handling we had learned about in the previous in the assignment before you went on your latest adventure. Right. So the full solution to that is in the zip file for this installment uh, inside index.html. It's extremely similar to the example, the worked example we did as part of the last installment. And that's uh, the only reason I came close to succeeding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so really, the, the biggest difference is obviously more of everything. So the la in the previous, in the one we did together, there was only a date. So 
There was obviously only three drop downs, not five. And the other difference was that we were using the date prototype instead of the date time prototype. So in this case, we're interested in date times rather than dates. Um, and for the most part, actually, the code is quite similar. Something I chose to do in this one that wasn't in the last one is I chose to use what we learned in ARIA to group the time and the date into two separate groups so that a screen reader would know that the two dropdowns for hours and minutes belonged together and that oh. they were a time. So they so basically it's an li which is role equals group aria labeled by and then the id of the thing that says time. So that way a screen reader knows that these two dropdowns together are the time. And then again a group for the three dropdowns for the date and saying the label for this group is the word date. Oh, that's a so good that, idea. Yeah. Yeah. Because why would you not do that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're being helpful and we've just learned about the aria stuff. So I thought it was good to to put it into real world practice. I so that's might really suggest I my solution was to. not as elegant as that. <laughs> Fair enough. My, yeah, I did so get there's... I did get pull downs for hour, minute, and seconds, along with day, month, and year. And I did spit it out in the formats you had already established for us. But I didn't go as far as doing the ISO stuff and such. So I got something to spit on the screen that has the right answer, though. For what I did, I didn't fail. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds like definite partial credit to me. <laughs> if if it works at all without throwing errors all over the place, then we're we're, we're going somewhere. I give myself a B plus. A B plus, very good. Um, <laughs> I'm entirely sure if if we were in a university environment, I may not have graded you quite as generously. Yeah, considering I only did like half the assignment, it's probably a C minus. But I said I would give me a B plus, and <laughs> say you would. <laughs> yeah, I've never I've never come across a, a lecture where they said so. Grade your own exam. <laughs> I would have done much better at university anyway. <laughs> so we'll we'll leave that aside. Um, and. For this installment, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop going in parallel because I realized that to do uh, test driven development justice, that was a terrible idea. What we'd be doing is rushing through something we've been building up to for ages, <laughs> and it just it wouldn't have worked well. So I, I was halfway through writing the notes and I just went, no, no parallel. Uh, we're going one track only, and we'll be doing one track only in the next installment as well to finish off the testing stuff. I think that's so good. I, it's I it's a little to... hard doing both. I mean, I like it on, on the one hand because the assignments have been easy as a result. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a little hard to, to and, and they've been getting a little bit long. So I'm, I'm glad you did it this way. This is going to be focused. It's focused and it also, it's going to make it easier, like I say, to do future challenges because I'll be able to give you the test suite and it's going to be just much clearer that way what's what's expected. So I, I think this is really good foundationing. We're basically, so far we've been programming, but we haven't really been doing any software engineering. Well, this is a taster of some actual software engineering this time. So we're taking it up a level from bashing away in your shed to engineering, which I, as I an engineer, I'm sure you understand the difference. Well, actually, Bart, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I even worked in software engineering, but I was doing my IT function within software engineering. I never really grokked what the difference between those two things would were. I knew there were computer scientists and there were com and there were computer engineers, software engineers, and I never really like. Well, how's that not the same thing? Well, a computer scientist and a software engineer would be much more similar, but a programmer and a software engineer may not necessarily be the same. So, programming so, is a function. Uh, computer scientist is a degree to me, so I'm not sure what the distinction even of those would be. 
Well, computer science covers way more. Computer science is a superset, right? Computer science covers database theory. There's even theoretical computer science, which covers all sorts of cool stuff, like oh, the traveling okay. salesman problem. And <laughs> so computer science is a really big catch-all, and it's the science of it, whereas software engineering is much more applied. It's like studying mm. physics will tell you a lot about a building, but an engineer is going to actually make you a building. Ah, okay. So computer scientists may get very lost in the weeds because they know all the theory, but actually you probably want a software engineer to build you an actual piece of software. And so software engineering is about sort of, you have a problem and you want to get to a solution. How do you structure that task? Because you don't just have at it. Right. You can try and that will work for Hello World and it will work for the kind of stuff we've been doing so far, but it's not going to work for Microsoft Office. You're going to have to start to put processes Chunks and structures together and, Yeah. You're going to have methodologies. You're going to have techniques. Like a hierarchical diagram of what the piece moving bits are and how they interact with each other. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to software engineering, but one of our first taster of it is this methodology called test-driven development. So that's in a way a way of approaching writing some code. So that is software engineering more than just programming. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So. Okay, so there's a few a few sort of definitiony things we, we should get out of the way. So test-driven development is a philosophy for writing code. So the idea is you start by writing some tests. Before you write any code, you write some tests. You run those tests on the full expectation they will all fail. If they don't fail, you should stop and think for a second, is my test possibly correct if it already passes before I've written the code? I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's a good approach. I'm going to stop you right away because I have caused some fuzziness on your part. Mm -hmm. Uh, In your introduction, no, no, you haven't made any any errors, but in your introduction, you actually talked a little bit more about what we're going to be covering. And I talked to, I I sort of introduced the topic. I think it was really critical what you talked about at that that, uh, second paragraph there. Okay, so... Test-driven development is our methodology for designing software, but test is a very broad word, right? Test test is a big, big section. So we're going to look at a particular type of testing to do our test-driven development called unit testing, Hmm. uh, which is another one of these ideas. And then to actually put all of this into practice, we actually need a framework. So basically some code pre-written for us by other people to allow us to actually do test-driven development using a unit test platform. In this case, it's one called QUnit. And QUnit is from the same people who made jQuery. Ah, so they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And QUnit is the testing platform for the jQuery product or project. So they they scratched their own itch and then released it. Right, exactly. And also, it means that this is not some... You know, some some amateur toy. This is cap- This platform we're going to learn today is capable of a project of the scale of jQuery. Wow! It's doing that. So this is a real tool. This is this is not a kid's chainsaw. This is a chainsaw chainsaw. This this is the real deal here. Now, is this going to force us to follow a specific process, or do we have some flexibility on on maybe our you know the way we like to code? Definitely flexibility. So I don't believe. I mean, if you're working in a corporation and you're part of a team of 20 people, you don't get to do your own thing. You Mm -hmm. have to fit in with a team and do things the way the team manager says you do things. But we're not that. We're we're doing stuff for ourselves. So we should use these tools like test-driven development and unit testing to make things work better for us. So basically, each of you should do this in a way that works for you. 
not as a sort of a strict religious practice, right? <laughs> this is something, and everyone's going to be a bit different because if you're going to be uber religious about it, it's write one test, write some code, get the test to pass, write one test, get the test to pass, right? I mean, ah, I'm guessing that's, that's not quite the way you do it. <laughs> no, it's just absolutely tedious. And we were, ch- I was chatting with, we were chatting with Jill over email about it and Jill says, well, actually, I write some code and then I do my first test, which is also against the uber strict interpretation of TDD, but it doesn't matter, right? Okay, good. This is not supposed to be something to beat everyone over the head with. This is, I'm supposed, I'm hoping to give you a tool to help you write code in a way that works for you. And so you should use this tool, how your personality, how your style gels with it. Okay, but you've got to take an approach to this in order to teach it to us. So now we're back to where you were just starting to talk about what are the steps that we're going to follow? Yeah. So, and as I say, they, they consider these guidelines, maybe. Maybe that's mm-hmm. a better way to describe it. These are guidelines. And if you were working in industry, they may not be guidelines. They may be rules. But, but for us, we're going we're to consider them as guidelines. So the, the basic philosophy of TDD is a cycle that you repeat and repeat and repeat until your code is at a stage where you're happy to stop repeating. So step one, test. Step two, write code until all the tests pass. And then step three is optional. Step three is called refactor. And step three won't happen every time. So as you're building up code, you're going to find code duplication or something, as I talked about before, a bad smell. And you're going to stop adding new features, going to rearrange the code you have to make it more efficient, rerun your test to make sure you haven't broken your code by rearranging it, and then move on to the next cycle. So it's test, code, maybe uh, refactor, test, code, maybe refactor, test, code, maybe refactor, test, code, maybe refactor, test, code, maybe refactor, and you do that. (laughs) until you arrive at something that you're considered a release date, a drop dead date for the customer, whatever is the trigger to stop. That is actually the, the only way anything stops is when it's due. Right. And software doesn't really, so, software is never quite finished, right? So you arrive at a point where you start using it, but you're still going to have maintenance updates to it from time to time because you're going to say, oh, actually, we need this new feature or oh, sugar, we found a bug, we need to fix that. So you, it's never finished. So that's why I don't want to say finished, because there's no such thing as finished software until no one's using it anymore and it's completely dead. Um, some people might think, oh my God, this is a lot of work here. We're, I mean, we're writing all of these tests. I mean, it's lots of extra lines of code. It's, the value isn't only there when you're writing the code. The value, that test suite stays with that code forever. So if you have a piece of code you're going to be relying on. Maybe it's some sort of automator service that uses a bunch of shell scripting or something to do something fun for you. Whatever it is, it's going to have a lifetime. And as long as that code is alive, you're going to be tweaking it, you're going to be fixing bugs, you're going to be adding new features. And as you do that, that test suite you wrote before is still with you. Okay. And so that will allow you to make sure that as you fix one bug, you don't break something else. <laughs> and you yeah. don't have to do a lot of effort in that, you just rerun your tests. Now, Dorothy, when because uh, this is what people, you know, most girls talk about on the uh, elliptical when they're exercising. Oh, absolutely, yes. The gym <laughs> is full of people talking about TDD. Exactly. Uh, Dorothy and I were talking about TDD, and she said, uh, you know, she's familiar with it and used it in, in her job. Uh, she was discouraged, though, because she felt like her TDD code was, uh, you wrote it once, and then once it, everything passed, then you never dealt with it again. I suggested that that's just because she writes really good code, because if you write crappy code, I'm guessing that TDD gets exercised pretty often with these big fails coming up, right? But it's not just, yeah, I mean, okay, that happens too. So as you're writing, you may have to run the test more often than, 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 than not. But even five years later, when it comes to adding in a feature to that code, 
all those tests you wrote five years ago are still valuable because your feature should add something to the code, but it shouldn't break anything you've written before. So those tests continue to have value until the day that software is decommissioned. Yeah, I, w- I would think. I mean, if you never see it flag anything, that just means you did a really good job. That doesn't mean that code was not worthwhile. Right, and I would argue it's unlikely you'll never see it flag anything. <laughs> that's, that's, we Guessing are human. Mine would come up a lot. But the thing is, like, one of the most common types of software bug, and they're really annoying, are called regressions, where something was working in version 6.4.1, and then they fix a completely different thing in 6.4.2, and that thing that was working just fine has suddenly stopped working. And then everyone on the internet goes bonkers because, well, this worked just fine last week, and now it doesn't work anymore. And that, that's a regression. <laughs> and if you have a test suite, you're less likely to get one of those. Right. I mean, right. you can have bugs in your tests because they're written by humans too. So this is not a panacea, but you are much less like you're, you're going to have higher quality code if you do this than if you don't. It won't be perfect because you're still human. <laughs> I'm guessing my code's going to be full of my my tests will be full of bugs, but that's another plot. But that's oh yeah, that's also something you fix as the code goes along, right? So you let's say you find a bug for real, then you have two questions: how do I fix the bug, and how do I fix the test suite that it doesn't pass this bug? Mm-hmm. And then you fix the test, so you get the test to fail, and then you fix the code, get the code to pass. Yeah, and then you know your test works because it showed that it's broken, and then it showed that it's fixed, and so your test suite will grow along with your code, and the two the two are completely symbiotic. They, they they live together forever and they help each other out. So it, it's it, I think there's great value in it. Um, and in fact, I have spent some time over the last few months in work retrofitting test suites to code that already has a history. Hmm. And I'm finding out that some of these subtle bugs that happened once a month were not accidents. They they were because there was a boundary condition not right in a function oh. somewhere. Oh, interesting. You know those kind of bugs that only happen on a Tuesday? You know those kind of ones? Well, <laughs> when you start retrofitting rigorous testing to your code, you will find those dumb little things where it works for every value except two or something like that. <laughs> so you start to find these kind of weird things. Two being the you second know. day of the week when it fails, right? Yeah, where it should have been a less than, but you use a less than or equal to, or it should have been a less than or equal to, but you use a less than by mistake. And yeah. you know, they go months without biting you, and then all of a sudden, randomly, a script that you thought was fine just barfs. And if you go back and write these tests function by function, you will tend to find these things. So I was, I'm not sure if I was pleasantly surprised, but I certainly discovered more bugs than I had hoped I would. But at the same time, there now is a test suite. and That's fantastic, though. I think so. On the whole, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's... that's I'm um, glad you confessed it, too. But look, I say it all the time. We're humans writing code. There will be bugs. Deal with it. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so... We are going to be, okay, so that's test-driven development. Let's have a little conversation about unit testing. Again, we're not going to be religious about unit testing. Unit testing has a couple of different aspects. The one I'm going to stress on, stress is the wrong word, focus on. The one that matters to us is the concept of a unit test being atomic. Running test number one should not affect test number two, Ah. should not affect test number three. And if I run them three, two, one, or one, two, three, or one, three, two, That should make no difference. So each test should start pristine and leave no side effect. So a test should come, do its thing, and go, and there should be no difference after it's finished running. Okay. And you achieve that with the help of a framework, because it would be a lot of effort to achieve that manually. Hmm. And so that's where a unit testing framework comes in. So a unit testing framework lets you define your test, and then the framework creates an environment, runs your test in that environment, destroys that environment, 
creates a fresh copy of the environment, runs your next test, destroys. Create, test, oh. destroy. Create, test, destroy. So each time it's working in a fresh environment. Okay. So whatever variables you created last time don't exist anymore. So it does, there can't be side effects because you're starting from new every time. And so that's the point of them being atomic. They're independent of each other. Okay. And if you do have side effects, you've, made, you've done something wrong by mistake. And um, an important con, uh, concept, which we're not really going to play with this week, we're going to play with it next week or next time, is the concept of a fixture. So you define some HTML, and then every time the test runs, there's a fresh copy of that fixture. And then your code might, you know, create a link or destroy a link or create an icon or destroy an icon. If you're testing, say, our link creation code, or sorry, our, our, our code for turning links into external links, your fixture would be a bunch of links. And then your code would run, and then you check to see that the links have now transformed in the way you wanted. And then before the next test starts, the framework would destroy that copy you've mucked with, create a fresh copy from the original definition of the fixture, and then your next test has a completely fresh set of links to go mess up. So create, test, destroy. Create, test, destroy. And it's all done for you automatically because that would be a pain in the backside. So that's why we're using a unit testing framework. So I followed you on what a, uh, what module was, and but the, the concept of a framework, I don't... A framework is just a piece of code. I'm, I'm sorry, fixture. Fixture doesn't... Right, so a fixture is the blank piece of paper. And for this week, we're going to use a genuinely blank piece of paper. But in Why is future, it called a fixture, so, though? The, the word doesn't... You made up the word. It's jargon. Okay, so a fixture is wrote... an initial set of conditions. It's a blank canvas. Hmm. Okay, well, but maybe... No, it's, a canvas. It's, a can... it's a standard... It's a standard canvas, which is, for this week, it's going to be blank every time, but next time it's going to be a bunch of links, the same bunch of links every time recreated from scratch. Okay. Recreated by what? By, by our test? A, by QUnit. So QUnit is going to create a copy of the fixture. Uh -huh. You're going to run your tests, and then it's going to throw that copy away because you might have changed it. You might have... Okay. You might have added an icon after a link or something. You might have, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do, you may have somehow altered the fixture okay. so that copy gets thrown away and a new one is cloned up and then the next test is run and it's thrown away and then a new copy is cloned up and then the next test is run and then it's thrown away so that does that make sense it, it, it's yeah yeah i, I, I reserve like the right block. to uh ask again later sure. what <laughs> sure now as i say for this for this installment our fixture is going to be completely empty every time so basically every time we're starting with nothing which is a pretty easy way to start, right? So every time our test starts, nothing exists. And then we okay. write our test, and then anything we did create, maybe we created a variable, whatever we created, it's all gone. And then the next test runs, and it starts with a completely empty slate. Okay. All right. I get it. I think. Okay. <laughs> so QUnit is the piece of software we're going to use to run these tests for us. Now, QUnit can be used from the command line through, through uh, Node.js. Or it can be used in the browser. And then the browser is much more fun because then you have hmm. a GUI. Okay. So we're going to do the browser approach. So we can do so the browser there... or are we going to do the browser within Code Runner when you and I are doing it? Okay. Well, Code Runner effectively is a browser, right? So if yeah. you give Code okay. Runner an HTML page and say run this HTML, what it actually does is it creates a Safari or a WebKit web, web view, which is basically a Safari window without the Safari window. Okay. So yes. 
Yes. <laughs> and we can do it because Code Runner is so cool. We can do it within Code Runner. You can do it within a browser window. You just have to remember to go refresh the browser window. You know, it, it, it's okay. cool either. Gotcha. So you'll find QUnit. It's a fully open source project. It's at uh, QUnitJS.com. And you will recognize the style of the page as being very like the jQuery page because it's from the same people. Okay. Uh, we are, so our code when we're using Q, QUnit is going to fall into sort of three files. The file with our code we're testing. And then a separate JavaScript file with our test. And then an HTML page that's going to be our test runner. It's going to basically be the GUI for actually running our tests. Because you don't want the tests in the code, because then when you're using the code for real, you have all of this cruft along with you. So if you can imagine pbs.daytime.js, we've been building up with these three prototypes in it. We wouldn't want the test in that file, because then when we use that file on a web page, we have all of these tests along with us. So you have the file. Yeah, that did get kind of messy with the way I was doing it with Jill. Exactly. So that's we're going to have a file with the code on its own, so it can be easily used in the real world. A file with the tests on their own, so they can be, they're separate, they're independent. And then an index.html file that's going to actually suck in both of those JavaScript files and run the test. Okay. And I put the two test files, so the index.html and the test file with all the JavaScript code, into a little folder called test. So when I'm looking at my project, I have my main file and I have a test folder. And that just makes it easy for me to see which JavaScript file is real and which is just the test. Oh, okay. Okay. So our test, the if you'll excuse me using the word atom again, I probably shouldn't, but basically the building blocks that build up a test are assertions. And an assertion is a statement of expected fact. I assert that this is going to be true. Yes. Now, if your code is correct, the assertion will pass. If your code is not correct, the assertion will fail. So a test can contain one or more assertions. If even one assertion fails, the test fails. Oh, okay. And this these assertions come within QUnit? Yes. So QUnit ships you a bunch of standard assertions, and it has a plug-in architecture, so other people can write their own assertions and, and ship them as a separate open source project. Or you could write your own assertions. But there's no need for any of that for what we're doing. We just need the basic assertions. Oh, good. In fact, we don't even need all of the basic assertions. We're not even using everything they've given us. And already we have more than we need. So the simplest assertion is simply called OK. <laughs> okay, see, takes... these words make sense. I can remember that one. Assert.OK. Yeah. So is it takes right? two arguments. Yeah, exactly. It takes two arguments, a thing to test, and optionally a message to sort of describe that test in English. If that thing to test evaluates to any truthy value, then the test passes. So a truthy value would be, well, any array is truthy. Um, anything that's undefined pretty much is truthy, apart from the value false, zero, and the empty string, basically. So that's a very forgiving test. You can okay. use it for things like, does this variable exist? Well, if it's okay, it exists. <laughs> or does this function exist? If it's okay, it exists. It's, a, it's an existence theory. Or if you want something which just has to give out some sort of non-empty string, or you know, like it, it's useful for very simple tests, and that's all it's useful for. It's just the simple stuff. Is it truthy in any way? Because if it's falsy in any way, it will fail. Okay, so the next assertion that's mildly more complex is called <laughs> equal, and it no, takes right? three arguments: a thing, 
another thing and a message, a description in English. So if the thing is double equal to the other thing, then that assertion will pass. So equal is equivalent to writing that double equals symbol. Right. Operators. Okay. So the equal test tests the first thing against the second thing. If they're equal to each other, it passes. So is that the one where like the number four and the word F-O-U-R would be the same, but they're not triple equal? Uh, okay, no, the number four and the string four would be string equal, four, okay. but not triple equal. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. Um, the next one then is does our triple equal. That's called strict equal. Oh, but yeah. So on assert equal, I I want you to say. So I'm going to say it for you. This is this is the one I learned a lot about from Jill. Was the way you use that is actual and expected. So yes. you put your code in to you know you call the function and and it's going to spit out an answer in actual and you think mm-hmm. the answer should be four. So you put that as yes. expected and then the message is those two things should have been equal or whatever you want your message to say. Yeah, I mean, it might have been, you know, correctly calculated, blah, blah, blah. But, you yeah. know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Some sort of English description. So actual, yes. unexpected, and then message as the arguments. Yeah. And that that just, man, I love that. That just makes complete sense to me. It just, it, 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 instantly I knew what it was for. Brilliant. So equal does that, but it's using a soft equality check with a double equals operator. Strict equal is exactly the same, but with a triple equals operator. Okay. Makes sense. So again, actual expected message. Then there is not equal, which has actual expected and message. And it's the exclamation point equal sign operator. So basically, if these are not equal, the assertion passes, which is a slight headbender because <laughs> that's backwards. I guess I can see how maybe that would be useful, but I don't want to use it. But OK, I haven't. I'm just trying to think in any of the examples I've been working on for this and so much or next. I'm not sure I've ever actually used it. OK, but nonetheless, it's a very straightforward one, right? Not sure. equal. And there's also not strict equal. Let me guess. Which... Exclamation point equal equal. Exactly. Okay. Uh, they're the most obvious ones. Then we come to one which is actually very useful, but sounds a bit weird. It's called deep equal. This time I really mean it? No. So hmm. Equal, strict equal, not equal, and not strict equal are for single values. Okay. A Boolean, a string, a number, an object. Although it doesn't work very well with objects, so let's not say an object. <laughs> so, you know, true, false, boogers, snot, whatever you're, you know, a value. Deep equals is for an array of numbers. So let's say that your function is supposed to return every leap year between 1999 and the year 4000. Well, you don't actually want to check, did I get an array or something? You actually want to check, did I get all the same numbers the whole way through the array? Okay. That's deep equality. You look into the thing and you make sure they're equal all the way down. Hence By the way, deep. it's... It's deep equal, not deep equals. Yes, they're all, yeah. none of them have an S. So it's equal, strict equal, not equal, gotcha. not strict equal, deep equal. And the amount of S's I have had to delete from my code <laughs> this week is astounding. If you ever see maths versus math, in, in Europe it's I, okay, maths, so we, in the US it's math. So it's not his fault. I know. And I picked a, an example to work through, which involves math. And the amount of times I got that wrong in my own code is ridiculous too. <laughs> The last assertion we want to mention today is one that I know when you were working with Jill, you didn't didn't go well with you. And yeah, that's just throw. Get... Throws so with an S? Throw. Yes, this one does have an S. Okay. Because it has to because throw is a JavaScript keyword. Mm. So that would that would cause trouble. Right. So throws is is this assertion. Throws has three things. A chunk of code which you expect 
will throw an error. In yeah. other words, you are going to give your function garbage, and that function is supposed to respond to garbage by throwing an error. So you write a, you use an anonymous function, and you expect that anonymous function to throw an error. Hmm. So that's the first argument, is the thing that really should throw an error. Okay. The second argument is the type of error you'd like it to throw. Ah. And then we're going to be really generic with this and just say we will accept anything with a prototype error with a capital E, which is basically the standard JavaScript, all errors. Oh, okay. Okay. Inherit from this. But you could use a regular expression so that the error would have to say invalid, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. You can be as picky as you like, but we're not going to be picky. And then the last argument is your piece of English to say what's going on. So this function refused to get the factorial of boogers, whatever your English might be. But basically some code that you full well expect to throw an error, the error you wanted to throw, followed by some English. And if that code does not throw the error you said it should, then the assertion fails. Hmm. So you use this for validating that your validation is correct. So in other words, all of my assignments have said, if you give this function garbage, it should throw an error. Okay, does it? That's oh. what the throws is for. You're testing cool. that assertion. I like it. And that's it. So there are little building blocks that we're going to build our test suite out of. All right. As a worked example, we are going to write together a tiny little API, very simplistic little API. We're going to call pbs.math without an S. <laughs> and it's going to provide two whole functions. It's going to provide a function named factorial, which will return the factorial of a number which will be passed as the first argument if that first argument is not a positive integer then you should throw an error All right. and in case you don't know what a factorial is i've included the link to the description of factorials on wikipedia we actually did this the factorial one right yeah, yeah. it's one of the ones i succeeded on in the old days <laughs> precisely then fibonacci is the next one which is the this hardest function... part of which is to spell it how many N's, oh, how many C's, nobody knows. You said you copy and paste every time, and I wish I'd I known that yep. before I started writing it. <laughs> and I did it this time, too, because I tried not to, and it kept getting underlined. <laughs> so did I. Okay. So Fibonacci series is what I'd like you to name this function, and it's going to return the entire Fibonacci series up to a given point, which is going to be passed as an argument. If that argument is not a number, then you should throw an error. If that argument is a negative number, you should just return an empty array because there is nothing in the Fibonacci series. Hmm. So there's no, the Fibonacci series up to minus one is nothing. So just return an empty array. Okay. But if you pass it boogers, that's an error. Like there's no possible okay. way to give a sane, mathematically sound answer to the, the Fibonacci series as far as boogers. So this that's... isn't homework. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to do this together. So basically okay. we're going to apply the concept of TDD through unit testing with QUnit, and write this code. So we're going to have three files. pbs.math.js is going to contain our API. Then inside the folder test, we're going to have an index.html that's going to be our QUnit test runner. And then also inside that test folder is going to be pbs.math.test.js. And in there, we're going to put our tests, which contain our assertions. Okay. So let's start by building our test runner. So that's going to be index.html inside the test folder. Most of this is going to be a copy and paste job. It's going to not change very much. So it's 25 lines long, which is not too bad. So if you can copy and paste it in, and then we can work through it. Alrighty, getting the right... Standard HTML5 file. Okay. 
So the first thing of note is on line seven. It says with a comment before it, load the QUnit style sheet from jQuery's CDN. And so CDN is rel- Content Delivery Network, by the way. Okay. And so it says uh, link rel equals style sheet type equals text. I see it says href equals HTTPS colon slash slash blah, 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 blah. So we're sucking in the CSS file from the QUnit people so that our page will look not crap. Okay. Um, the next thing we load in is our code, the code we want to test. So script type equals text slash JavaScript, SRC equals dot dot slash pbs.math.js. And that's because this is down in the test folder. We're going to go up one and grab our our pbs.math.js. Okay. Now our code exists inside this test runner. Then QUnit's documentation say that it demands you create two empty divs with two specific IDs. The ID Q unit and the ID unit, the ID Q unit minus fixture. Okay, so, so we're just copy creating paste. Them. Copy paste will always be the same. All right. The next thing will also always be the same. Write a script tag. Now that all everything is in place, everything is ready. Write a script tag, which loads Q unit itself into the page. Again, hmm. from jQuery's content delivery network. Okay, and then. The, the very last thing we do is we load our tests. Oh, into the, the first page. one was the CSS. It was just the cascading style sheets. This is the actual JavaScript code of QUnit. Q, yes. And then the last thing to come in is our tests. Okay. Which is the line. All right. I haven't so screwed it up yet, copying, pasting. <laughs> and it's a very simple HTML page. So the only thing that will change you know, from time to time is where you load in your code and where you load in your tests. Those two lines change. And then next week, we'll see that the fixture we actually will use next week. But for this one, our fixture is completely empty. Div ID equals QUnit fixture slash div. One totally empty fixture. Okay. Okay, so save that file. And then either within uh, Code Runner or in a browser, view that index.html page. So if you're in Code Runner, just make sure that the drop down next to the run button says HTML, not ah. uh, JavaScript. Right, right, right. Oh, look at that. PBS.math.js test suite. It's got little borders and pull downs. It's all cute. Yeah, no tests are shown. So we have a title, we have a menu, and that's it. Because right now there are no tests. So it it probably says zero of zero tests or something like that, does it? Hey, it completed those zero tests in three milliseconds, though. Oh, good for it. What was it spending three milliseconds doing? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's the smallest unit of measure. Well, it's going to have to check its own data structure to see if there are any tests to find. So I guess it takes a minute to realize, hang on a sec, I am the dumbest test suite ever. When your gloves aren't in the room, it still takes you time not to find it. Precisely. There you go. Okay, so there is one very boring test suite. But nonetheless, it is working. So we're ready to move on to writing our first test. So the file pbs.math.test.js inside the test folder is where we're working. So we're going to start with a really, really basic test. I said we're going to write an API called pbs.math. So let's actually make sure that pbs and math have been created. So we're going to, I have a bunch of comments across the top just to say what the file does. And then on line 10 is where it really happens. So you define a test by saying, or by calling a function called qunit.test. So that's standard. That's always going to say that. Yes. The okay. first argument to qunit.test is the name of the test, or a, sort of an Englishy description of the test. So in okay. this case, I'm saying 
namespaces exist is what this test is for. And then you give it an anonymous function, which is actually the code for the test. Okay. In other words, the assertions go into an anonymous function, which is the second argument. That anonymous function will be called by QUnit with one argument. And that one argument will be the library of all existing assertions. Now, you can name that anything you like. I would advise you call, you give it the name assert. Failing that, the name A. But you could say boogers and then say boogers.ok and boogers.equal and boogers.strict.equal. The name is actually up to you. It will be placed in whatever you name the first argument. Okay. So when it says function assert, that is me naming the first argument assert on the knowledge that QUnit will in will make that become equal to its suite of assertions. Okay. So we're going to use assert because that is nice. That makes your head not explode. Perfect way to describe it. I will obey you because I know that I could call it boogers, but I will resist that temptation. <laughs> yeah, I knew if I didn't say that, you wouldn't. I <laughs> and I would name it boogers. <laughs> it's a little tribute to you, but even in work, my test suites are full of the string boogers. <laughs> It's really handy because nobody else is going to write that. I right. used I used it once. I was looking for trying to figure out where I had saved something in this giant repository at work. So I saved a PowerPoint file with the word boogers in it where I thought it might be did a search or because there was it was disjointed yeah. figure out where it was putting things and I did a search and sure enough it found my file and my file only cuz no one in an 80,000 person company had ever written boogers in a PowerPoint file before. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, so you know, you know, if you're writing tests, you know, does this work with any string? Oh, I got to be creative now. No, I don't. Boogers. <laughs> okay, so our my small contribution function, to this entire series. <laughs> I, I have to say, making it fun is worth something. There so, we yeah, go. I, I genuinely do enjoy it. Okay, good. Okay, so our test. So the second argument is this anonymous function, and that anonymous function contains two assertions. Assert dot okay. And then it takes two arguments, what should be truthy, and some English to describe it. So PBS is all I'm testing here. And then the English is expect PBS namespace to exist. So it's going to go through the code, and if it finds the word PBS anywhere in the code? No, PBS is, if we've written our API, then PBS is an actual thing that exists. There is something with the name PBS, and it will be truthy. Right. Isn't that what I just said? It just well, no, finds if, PBS typed anywhere in that code? No, if PBS was inside a string, it wouldn't find it, right? It has to be a variable okay. named PBS. It could be a function, couldn't it? And it would still yes, find it? Could, it? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. it ha- yes, exactly. It has to be a defined thing okay. that contains something. In this case, it's going to be, technically speaking, an object that contains another object that is our API. So the next assertion is PBS.math. Expect PBS math namespace to exist. Okay. So we now have two tests. But I just ran it and it failed. Oh, we didn't write it yet, did we? Right, exactly. So if you save that and then do a refresh, or in your case, press the run button again on index.html, then you will now see that it says two uh, or zero of two passing or whatever. Let's see, it said died on test number one. Uh, Correct. One test completed. Now it took seven milliseconds with one failed. So zero okay, assertions now. of one passed. One huh. failed. Wait a minute. Why does it say zero assertions of one? 
That's a good question. Zero assertions of one past, one failed. Okay, so PBS does exist already? Uh, well, the title is pbs.math.js test suite. That would make the that won't make a variable named PBS coming to be. It's interesting. Where I, is have, it? I would have expected both so of this, them to fail. Wait a minute. So there's nothing in PBS.math yet. This is just PBS.math. What do we, are we running this against PBS.math? I would expect math? this to fail. I would expect this to completely fail. Because we haven't written PBS.math yet. Exactly. So I'd expect it to fail. Now, what's not right is that it's saying there's only one assertion. And quite clearly, on line 11, I say assert.ok, and on line 12, I say assert.ok. So clearly, there are two assertions. Why does it only think there's one? Okay. That's actually the question I'm driving at here. Oh, oh, this is a, this is a setup. It is a setup, completely, totally, and early. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, I don't know, Bart, I swear this worked when we talked about it earlier today. Okay, go ahead. So the way QUnit works is that when it runs that test, all of the assertions throw an error when they fail. So we got as far as line 11. That did not pass, and it threw an error. And at that point, QUnit never made it as far as line 12, so it never saw oh, that assertion. Okay. So, so what we you, you'd probably do, like to know whether one of them failed or both, right? So what we want to do is we want to tell QUnit how many it should expect. And then if it gets any less, it knows something's gone horribly wrong. So you do that with the pseudo assertion i'm going to call it which is expects and so you basically add in a line that says so inside the same test we add a line above our two asserted okays assert dot expect two and it says if everything goes well here you will have met two assertions before you finish running this function uh, and then you will refresh it says one test completed in whatever amount of milliseconds zero assertions of two passed probably yeah, so one test failed, two yes. assertions. It, that's kind of a weird terminology. Zero assertions of two passed. Oh, no, 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 that does make sense. So mm-hmm. zero of two passed, two failed. Okay, yes. I like that better. Yes, and so one test completed with one failed, none skipped, and none to do. And we haven't mentioned skipping or to doing yet, so don't worry about okay. that. We will, but we haven't. Okay, so our test is now working as it should. It is failing. Because we have not written any code. Yay! So if our tests were passing now, I would be worried. But it's not, so we're okay. Okay, so now we get to write into our main file, pbs.math.js, and all we're going to do is create the PBS namespace using our magic incantation var pbs equals pbs, question mark pbs, colon, squirrely, squirrely, semicolon. So this is our remember this and copy and paste it forevermore, setting up the namespace. Right. Ooh, I got one so green and that. one red. I'm feeling Perfect. better. Right, so now the first assertion has passed because PBS exists, but PBS.math does not exist yet, so that assertion is failing. Okay, so now let's continue with our copy-paste job. So we're using our standard self-executing anonymous function approach, and in here we're finally saying PBS.math equals squarely squarely. So now the PBS.math namespace exists. It's completely empty, but it exists. Yeah. And now our first test should pass. Two greens nothing is failing. You will notice that by default, what, J- what QUnit does is it hides successful tests. So you don't see the two oh, greens. Yeah. What you see is a blue line. If you click on that blue line, it'll expand out and show you its content. Wait, a blue line? So it should say a blue line named, uh, whatever we name this test. Uh, the test is namespaces I'd... exist. So click on namespaces okay, exist. Okay, it's not green. It's green. 
Inside the big red box, I see one dot expect oh, PBS yeah, named sorry, space. Did you copy and paste in the the, 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 the code there to, to name the math so that everything passes? No. The second okay. the second set of code now. The second set of code replaces the first set of sorry, code. Sorry, got you. Okay. Paste. And now your Play. test should go. Ah, no now re- it's blue and it says one namespaces exist. Because that was the name of the test, not of the sub questions within the test now you can click on that word and it will expand out and show you its content so the reason it automatically collapses is in the real world you will have many tests yeah and you don't want to be seeing everything that worked unless you're like really arrogant and need a pat on the head every time precisely so by default it collapses itself so that what you see when you scan through the output is the giant red stuff and it's very red like when a test fails it's very red and that's good okay so we have now done our first cycle. We wrote some tests. We wrote some code. The tests now pass. So that means we're ready for cycle number two. Write some more tests. So we're going to write the test, in this case, um, for the function factorial. But what we're going to do the tests for is whether or not that function is correctly throwing an error when you give it garbage. That's the okay. easiest. You know, step one, validate your arguments. So is the argument validation working? So I am naming my test factorial argument validation. Okay. How come there's no comments in this, Bart? Because the English is the comment, right? I don't know. I've never seen this much code in your of yours without anything in it. So do I keep the qunit.test namespaces existing? Yes. So underneath that comes the next test. So queuing okay. up the test and then it ends and then this test comes in next. Okay. Basically, we're sticking this to the bottom of that file. Okay. Appending. Appending. So, again, we start with test. First argument is a string describing what it is it does and then the second argument is an anonymous function and we get to name the argument whatever we like and I'm naming it assert. And this time we have nine tests. Now, Oh, the okay. last thing I will write is that assert expect nine, because I won't know how many I need until I'm finished writing them. So okay. I'll write my assertions, then I'll count, and then I'll throw them up there. So if, so we had put, is... if we'd put assert expect, let's say you had only thought of eight before you wrote it, you wrote mm-hmm. an eight, would it only look for eight? What would it no. do? It would throw an error and go, you told me eight, and I ran nine. Mm-hmm. Huh? So it will fail. I'm going to do that. Number... Yeah, do by all means. It'll yeah, happen just... you by accident often enough. <laughs> yeah, but it, it helps cement why you would want to do it after the fact. But then it's sort of like, yeah, what if I don't remember to do that? And okay, so an error if you're wrong either way. So if you're wrong by you say three and it only gets two, or if you say one and it does get two, it'll it'll throw an error either way. Well, I like the way it did it. So it put a big red box around it like it should when something fails. And it, when it gets to the 10th argument or the 10th line says expected eight assertions but i got nine so i don't know what you're doing here precisely interesting okay so assert that expect as i say i know it'll be nine so nine it is but that was the last character i wrote in that yeah test okay so here we have so what we're trying to do is we're trying to prove that when you give this function garbage inputs it will give you garbage it will throw an error (laughs) So assert.throws is our friend here. Yeah. And assert.throws takes three arguments. And because they're quite long, I've written the three arguments one under the other under the other. So the first argument is that anonymous function that calls pbs.math.factorial with no arguments at all Mm -hmm. on line five. 
The second argument is the error we want, which is just error. And so we're just saying you better error. We're not telling you what the error is going to be. We just – it's an error. Yeah, so error is like the superset of all the different types of error JavaScript could throw. So we're basically being okay. as unprescriptive as we could. We'll take okay. any error. Take them all. We'll accept them all. You could insist it was a type error. Well, I just – I didn't want to get into that level of – what, what if you wanted to check to see if the error, like in the case uh, you didn't give an argument, the, if the error was supposed to say um, uh, you didn't oh, give me an argument. argument? Then you would put a string there, and then the error would need to contain that to be that string. Or you could put a regular expression there, and then the error so, would need to contain. Okay, so would it be just just the the string would be there instead of the word error in our assert.throws? Yes. yes. Oh. Or the regular expression would be there. So a regular expression okay. in JavaScript between slashes. Yeah, okay. so basically on line seven, there would be a string, the name of a prototype, which is what we have, or a regular expression. Okay. Cool. And then the last bit is the English. So throws an error when called without arguments is our first assertion. I like this. And then we have another assertion for throws an error when called with a string. And oh, look, it's the string boogers. How did that happen? <laughs> and then we have an assertion that it throws an error when called with a Boolean. And then that it th throws an error when called with a plain object. So squarely bracket A colon boogers is an object with one key named A and one value, boogers. Don't know how that happened. Um, it throws an error when called with a prototyped object. In this case, we're, we're giving it the prototyped object error dummy. It's a prototyped object. I could have given it... Well, I couldn't think of any other prototype um, that was standard, so I just threw in error dummy. Okay. Uh, we're making sure it throws an error when passed with an array object. So we're mm -hmm. passing it the array 1, 2, 3. And then we're saying it should throw an error if you pass it a function object. So we're just sticking in an anonymous function that does nothing. So function, open bracket, open parens, close parens, open squarely, close squarely, is the world's stupidest function. <laughs> it has nothing in it, but it is still a function. Right. And that should throw an error. And then it should throw an error if you give it something that's not an integer. So how's about math.py? That's there not an go. integer. And then finally, it should throw an error if you give it a negative number. So how's about we make sure it throws an error on minus 42? Of course it's 42. Of course it's 42. I use 42 on boogers a lot. <laughs> so there are now nine assertions that if you pass these things, an error should come out. Now, I'd like you to run this, and I'd like you to notice that it passes, which is going to initially make you go, wait, what? Yeah, because we don't have anything function for the errors to come from. Yeah. Yeah, but the function doesn't exist. So you try to run some code for a function that doesn't exist. What's going to happen? JavaScript's going to throw an error. Oh, <laughs> so this doesn't mean anything at all. That's... <laughs> yeah. Now, there's, uh, you could there's two, You could either accept that fact, or if you wanted to, you could put another assertion above, so basically between lines two and three, using so assert.ok and then the name of the function. And you could give it, you know, function exists could be the that first way it assertion. would fail. And that way it would fail. So you could do that. And in fact, in future, in the stuff I've prepared for next week, that is what I'll be doing. But in this case, I just wanted to demonstrate throws. So I okay. didn't do that. And uh, change assert.expect to 10. Exactly. Or okay. it will give you a, a red. Okay, so now we need to write our code. So it actually does throw these assertions. So the first thing I just want, I would say to do is just to write a little stub of the function. So this is going to go inside the self-executing anonymous function in pbs.math.js. 
And it's just a very, very basic stub of our function. pbs.math.factorial equals function n. So is this right after is... we initialize the main namespace? Yeah. Okay. And all we're doing here is the argument validation bit. Right? We're not actually doing any factorials yet. We're only doing the bit where we get cranky if people give us rubbish. Okay. So if arguments.length is not greater than or equal to one, then throw an argument and say, sorry, it's throw an error. I need an argument. So first argument is required and must be a positive integer. Okay. Why do you do everything if, backwards? Why didn't you say arguments.length less than one? Uh, because, you know, that would have worked just as well. But your Perfect. brain is, it's got to be My brain greater than or because, equal to one, so... My brain is that way because in Perl, there's a magic word called unless, and that's how I think of these things. Unless I get what I want, throw an error. Can't you do the factorial of zero, which is one? Right, so but this is the number of arguments. Oh, number of arguments. Never mind. Sorry. The next thing we're doing is checking that we got an integer. So I, because I'm me, I use a regular expression to to check if I got an integer. And a regular expression will only work on a string. So I force whatever the first argument is to be a string is why we say string n and then i call the match function to run my regular expression against it and my regular expression is starts with one or more digits and then ends so hat means start of string dollar means end of string and the only thing between start of string and end of string is digit plus which is one or more digits and a dollar dollar means end of string Uh wow (laughs) there's nothing between the start and the end other than digits what you have is a number that is a whole number because there's no decimal point in it. Mm-hmm. It's not negative because there's no minus sign and it's not boogers because it's only allowed to have digits. Okay. So that is an integer. That is a positive integer. And then you stringify it and then you say not that. Yeah. So unless I get that, right? If okay. not, read it as unless. So unless I get an integer, throw an error. Okay. Yeah? Okay. And the last line there is me thinking ahead. Um, it's just saying, make sure that I turn whatever it is I got into an actual number, because maybe it was the string four, which is valid, but I need to turn it into a real number to do math on it later. So I'm just saying var int n equals parse int n. That's just me being an abundance of caution there. Okay. It could be a string of an integer, so, which we're happy with. That makes sense. But let's force it to be an, an actual number, so we'll parse int it. Okay. So now if we run again... We should see that we now have our test passing properly. Yes. Same results. So we are now ready to write more tests. Okay, great. So they were the test to make sure that we correctly whined when something was wrong. Now how's about some tests to make sure our factorial actually calculates correctly? Well, so I am calling oh, this new set of, Okay. I'm calling this new set of tests inputs to pbs.math.factorial give expected outputs is the description I put in it. Seems sensible. Again, we have an assert.expect2, but leave that aside uh, for now. Basically, that was the last thing I wrote. So the first thing I always check is the lowest possible. So if you have a function which takes inputs in a range, it's really important to check the extremes of that range. Right, right. So the lowest possible positive integer is zero. So that's the first thing I'm going to check. And so we're using strict equal. So assert.strictEqual, and then it's expected actual. Sorry, actual expected. So the actual is going to be call our function with the argument zero. And the actual is what we think it should be, which is one. No, 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 no. No, the actual is factorial of zero. The expected is one. 
that's not what I said. That's what I meant to say. Yes. <laughs> okay. And again, our English is the factorial of zero is one. Okay. And then we should check another number that's not at an extreme, just a random number minding its own business. So assert.strict equal pbs.math.factorial 5, 120. The factorial of 5 is 120. And if there was such thing as a maximum possible valid number, I would have a third test for the top of the valid range. But in this case, there is no top. You can get the factorial of a million if you like. It will break your computer because it takes forever, but you can. Perfectly legal to do. So I have a comment to myself saying there is no maximum, so no need to test the upper bound. So I've tested the lower bound, I've tested a random number in between, and there is no upper bound, so that test is missing in this case. But if you had a function that needed numbers between 4 and 10 or something, you would check 4, and you would check 10, and you'd pick one in the middle. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So again, we should now have lots of fail, because right now our function does nothing. Um, I think I'm getting an end of script error. I think at the end of that piece, I need like a close, close in a bunch of parentheses and such, maybe. Okay, where did you put this? This should be in pbs.math.test.js, and it should have been after everything you had before. It shouldn't be inside right. anything existing. Right, before. but shouldn't there be a, don't I need a closing of all the parentheses and such within there? They're on line 11 in the sample. If they're not in your pasted, then that would be a problem. Uh, I Let me undo my color chart. Oh, that's weird. They didn't copy when I was in the... Um, yeah, they are there if I look at it in the pretty colorful mode, but when I changed it to regular code and, and made it... No, so, oh, you know what? Oh, God, no, that's bad graphics. Turn, uh, turn, So hit the, the two open close brackets to turn it into plain code, and then yeah. hit, and then toggle the line wrap, and that last piece disappears off the screen, and you don't see the scroll unless <gasps> you're over the window. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I knew what that error meant. I knew it the wasn't copy. anything else. Yeah. The copy button, of course, gets you out of that. That's still annoying. Yeah, uh, I'm still getting it. Uh, oh, no, I'm getting the right kind of errors. Good. Because you should have errors because we haven't written the code to actually do this yet. So they should both fail. Yes. Undefined and undefined. Yes, because our function right now, you'll see it has no return statement even. So if you don't give a return, then the result of the function is indeed undefined. Yeah. So now we need to go back and insert into that function we have a stub of. So after the line var int n equals parse int n, we need to write the rest of our code. So I've decided, because I know from the definition of factorial over on Wikipedia, that the factorial of zero is defined as one, and the factorial of one is defined as one. So I'm saying if we got one or zero, return one. So we're basically short-circuiting the trivial answers. That's on line 18 yeah. there. We've written all this together yeah, before, exactly. so we don't, probably don't need and to then go we through use a loop. To... We use a loop to calculate the rest of the factorials. Okay. And then we return our answer. All so right. The factorial of five is five by four by three by two by one, which does nothing, so don't bother with the by one. Okay, right. so now we can rerun our tests, and now they should all pass. The factorial of zero is one. The factorial of five is 120. Yay. Okay. There you go. Okay, so we've done another cycle. We're getting quite good at this. We've rotated the wheel quite a few times now. Yeah. So the last last cycle here uh, is to do the same again. Well, the last two cycles. So for Fibonacci now, we need to do the same. So we're going to start by writing some tests. pbs.math.fibonacci series 
exist. So this time I'm deciding to be a little bit cleverer. I should have I should have been this clever in the first one. I think so you writing probably a should change sim- the uh, comment at the top. I don't think that's the t- the factorial function anymore. Oh yeah, so so we should because there wasn't a comment at the beginning of the previous one. That's where it went. Ah, okay. So I was yeah, copy and pasting going on. Oh, now I got to spell okay. Fibonacci. Oh no. Copy paste. Yeah, really. So this time we have a very simple test. And if you have a test with one assertion, you do not need the assert.expect. Okay. That's the assumption. Assumption is one. So in this case, we say qunit.test, pbs.max.factorial exists, and our assertion is simply that Fibonacci assert.factorial equals. Yeah, sorry. Yes, very good. Okay. Assert.strict equal type of pbs.math.fibonacci series should be function. Because if it is a function, then its type of is function. Oh, okay. So that's, that's a, a good, good strong assertion that it has been defined. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we go on to our argument validation, which is exactly like before in structure. We're saying an expect seven this time because we're allowing any number for this. So we don't have to check if pi throws an error or if minus four, 42 throws an error. But for the rest, it's all the same. So we don't want boogers. We don't want true. We don't want the object A to boogers. We don't want... Mm-hmm. an array, one, two, three, etc. Okay. So again, we should now have failing going on. How depressing. Yes, it's a total fail, Bart, because the function oh. has not been defined. Indeed, it has not. Okay, so let's... So that's failing before it gets to the other subcategory stuff, right? Oh, no, the validation uh, it does pass at seven. Okay, never mind. Sorry. Because it's getting an error because there's nothing to run. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, so now let's write a stub of our function just like we did before. Again, only doing the argument validation. So we're saying we need an argument. So if arguments.length, if not arguments.length greater than or equal to one. And this time, because we don't care whether it's an integer or not, we just want a number. So you can say all Fibonacci series up as far as 4.73215. That's valid to say. So this time we just want type of n not to be, if type of n is not number, throw an error. So we want type of n to be number. Right. And then there we go. So that's our very, very simple. So this will still throw the errors properly. This will pass because it's going to throw errors because nothing's running yet. Right. But so all we're checking for now is that it throws errors and this will throw the errors. So that should pass now. And now the function exists. That's such a weird test to run, but okay. <laughs> so now we're ready to write more tests. Now we need to write the test to see if our function calculates correctly. So inputs to pbs.maths.fibonacci series give expected outputs is the name of this test. And here again, we have our assert assert expect at the top, which is five, but I wrote that last. And now we have to use deep equal because this function is supposed to return an array of everything in the series up to that point. So we need our expected to be an array. Hence, we need deep equal. So we call the function with minus 42 which is a negative number. And our documentation says a negative number should return the empty array. So our expected is simply square bracket, square bracket, the empty array. And then it says in English, minus 42 evaluates to an empty array. Right. Second. Then if we ask for everything in the Fibonacci series up to and including zero, we should get back the array, which contains a single value zero. So that's our next test. So we call the function with zero. And our expected value is the array that contains zero as its only element. 
Then I see what happens if I say, give me all the Fibonacci up as far as 1. Well, that should be 0, 1. In other words, the array of 0 and 1. And then I skip ahead a bit and say, fine, give me everything up as far as 8. And that gives me 0, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8. And then the last thing is just make sure we're dealing with those fractions properly or those non-integer numbers properly. So we say everything up to 25.6, please. And that gives us 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21. So again, we're using deep equal because we want to test the full array. Our expected value is a full array. So that's why we're using deep equal. No maximum, so no upper bound to test. So there we go. There's our test. They are, of course, all going to fail because our function is going to return undefined, 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 and undefined. Whee! I like the, the way it shows expected in a, in a vertical line column. That's cool. Okay, so now we can actually write our function. So again, we're short-circuiting the trivial values, and then we're doing the math with a with a while loop. We probably don't need to go through the maths together, or do we? No, no, because uh -uh. we've done it's it there. before. Uh, as an aside to the listeners, and actually we're going to talk through it because you have used Slice, but I have never talked about Slice. <laughs> Way ahead of the class. You really are on this one, yeah, because I, 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 my brain doesn't like Slice, but I figured it's about time I made peace with it. Um, so, <laughs> the, And I learned it from the Codecademy courses. Yes. So the code above we didn't really talk through uses Slice to quickly jump in and get the last element in an array. Slice is really easy for doing that. So, as a little aside here, we say that JavaScript contains a standard function in the array prototype called slice. Uh, Allison uses it all the time. I generally don't. This function returns a piece or a slice of an existing array. So, you can use no arguments at all, in which case you get back the whole array. So, the slice where you don't say what slice is the whole cake, please. Which is an interesting default. <laughs> Give me the whole cake. Nice portion. Uh, if you choose to pass it, the first argument is the starting point, basically, of your slice. So if you want to begin at zero to get the start of the array, and then positive integers are basically your starting array index. So two will exclude the first three items and so forth. So array indexes are zero index, or so everything's one different to what you think it is. Uh, you can also start at the end, and you can give it an index of minus one to say, give me the last start at one before the end. Uh, and the, the returned array is still in the forward direction, but it starts from so many from the end. So slice minus three returns the last three elements in the array. So in this case, I wanted the last element, so I said a slice of minus one. I think I figured out why this this function makes so much sense to me. In Excel, if you get a six-digit date in a in a column, so it says like uh, 120417 in, in United States method of saying digits, and you want mm -hmm. to know what year that is, you can tell in Excel there's a function that says write two, and that would give you 17. Right. So you know now you can you can break this uh, up into columns. Well, there's an easier way to break text into columns. But anyway, that would be one way you could do it, and then you could sort things by the year. Otherwise, it's going to sort okay. by the, the month, and that isn't pretty much ever what you want. And that's kind of what no. Slice does. Okay. So you practice at the concepts, which is why it made perfect sense to you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I missed the subtlety of why you used slice in this uh, function, though. Why did you, what did you use it to do? Okay, so the, the, the definition of the Fibonacci series is you take the last two and add them together. Oh, okay, so you need to find the last two. So I need to get out the last two easily, and the easiest way to get out the last two without a whole bunch of dot length minus ones, dot length minus two, is so just slice them off. It doesn't slice them off, it just gives you the slice. So right. You're not destroying the array, you're just taking the back slice. 
And so that's just easier. So you slice off the last two and then you can say last two zero plus last two one is the next answer. Right. That's why I was using it. Uh, and so you can also give it a second argument, which is the array index before which you should stop. So if yeah. you say to slice one comma three, that means you will have array indexes one and two because you stop before three, which means you get the second and third element in the array because it's zero index. If you want everything but the first and last, you say slice one comma minus one. Then you get starting at first ele- starting at element one, which is the second element, all the way up to but not including the minus one element, which is the last element, which gives you everything in the array apart from the first and the last. Okay. So slice is fun, and that's how it works. Okay, so that's away from our little aside. So we have now actually got a fully working test suite and a fully working mini API. And we've done quite a few cycles here through the process, but what we have not yet done is a refactor cycle. So actually, there is something here we can refactor. We have tests for two distinct things, but they're all mushed together. We have tests for our factorial function and tests for our Fibonacci series function, and there's no obvious way to tell that looking at that test suite. Yeah. They're not in any way grouped together. So actually, it would be really nice if we could group them. And we can. So QUnit calls a group of texts a module. And the function for making such a group is QUnit.module. And QUnit.module takes two arguments. A name for the module as a string as the first argument. Sorry, no. Ah, I'm wrong here. I'm reading the wrong code. Okay. <laughs> It is still a name as a first argument. Okay. Uh, it takes three arguments, though. So qunit.module, first argument is a name, which I'm just giving the name of the function as the name of the module. It's just easier. So I'm saying pbs.math.factorial. So we could have just called it factorial? We could have just called it factorial or the factorial function or okay. boogers. Okay. The second argument is useful in future, but we're not using it today. So for now, we're using the completely blank object, which is squiggle squiggle. Next week, it won't be always blank. Next week, we'll be using it to do helpful things to save us copying and pasting lots of code. What, what is but the second week, argument? It, the second argument is something called a hook. Okay. It, it basically, it's an object of hooks. Okay. Our object is completely empty. So just like the empty array is square bracket, square bracket, the empty object is squiggle, squiggle. Okay. And then the third argument is a callback or an anonymous function, as we, as, we, as we call them. And that anonymous function is now where you should put your tests. Hmm. So we're copying and pasting our tests into this anonymous function. So what, and the thing is, what 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 does it what does making a module with those things in it do? Is that just for more readability? Does it actually execute differently? Um, yeah, it will execute them all together. Yes, it will change the order of execution. But yes, it allows you to make your code easier to read because everything that's part of Factorial is now indented by one and grouped together. And in the GUI, it lets us do fun things as well that I'll talk you through in a minute. Okay. So it's helpful in the code because now everything's indented in. Mm-hmm. So you can now clearly see as you scroll through, we have two separate groups of things. Yeah. So you just pile them up under these two different modules. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. And the namespaces are ex- outside the module. So they still exist without being in a module. You don't have to have stuff in a module. So they are top level. Then you have a module that contains tests. And then you have another module that contains more tests. And a module can contain a module, can contain a module, can contain a module. Oh, nice. Okay. So you can nest these as deep as you like. Obviously, the depth you need depends on the complexity of your code. In this case, our code is not complex, so a depth of one is sufficient. So we haven't actually changed any of the 
tests, what we've done is put them inside these modules. So when we rerun our test suite, nothing should begin failing unless we've made a terrible mess. And you should also check that before you make this change, the number of tests and the number of assertions is the same as after you make this change, because <laughs> otherwise you've broken something. But you should now have a nice, complete test suite. Um, all of the code for this completed project we've worked through, so pbs.math.js and then the test folder containing pbs.math.test.js and index.html are all in the zip file for this installment. So you can see my final version. So now I'd like to switch back to the GUI because we never described all of it. We said it existed and we showed it to you, but we didn't really describe it. So it has a header and then it has our tests. And between those two things, it has a little bar that I'm going to call the toolbar. Okay. Depending on how wide or narrow your window is, it may be on one line or two lines or three lines, but basically it will be a bar which contains all the elements I'm about to describe. Let's start with the drop down labeled modules. Oh, look at you that. PBS.math.factorial. Yes. Oh, By nice. default, all modules is what's run against. Yeah. And if you had five modules, you can see you actually have checkboxes. So you can actually check which modules to run. So you could run one or as many or as few as you like. So if you had a bigger project with 50 modules, you might only run three of them. You click three checkboxes and then click go, and it will run only those tests. So if you just click math.factorial there, just and you yeah. click apply. And then, hey, presto, you only see the tests for math.factorial. So those words, are those, where it says the little checkbox, is that the text that you put in for the name of the module? If you'd called it boogers, that would have said boogers? Exactly. Okay. That's it, exactly. You've got to know one. So now if we look at our tests themselves, you'll also notice that namespaces exist hasn't changed at all because we didn't put that in a module. It's just sitting where it always was. But below that, our tests for factorial say pbs.math.factorial colon, and then the name of the test. So it's module, and then test name, and then module, and then test name, and then module, and then test name. So you see that our four or three tests for factorial all have prefixed in front of their name, the name of the module they belong to. You see that? It's a line. It's yeah. A test. Yeah. I'm noticing something, though. If you, if you ask for a certain module, though, it doesn't show you your namespace exists. Because it's not right, in a module. that's not in that module. Yeah. It's not in any module. Yeah. It's not in any okay. module. Yeah. And then again, we see the Fibonacci series. Okay. So we can see the naming here. So if you had deeper nesting, that would work out. The next thing we have is a filter box. So if you put it back to all modules, uh -huh. and then in the filter box, this allows you to do basically do a test search on the name of the test. So let's just say we're only interested in the arguments. So I'm going to type argument into there and click go. Now I'm going to see just two tests, invalid arguments through errors and invalid arguments through errors for both ah. factorial. Oh, so it's, it's basically looking for any text. In the name of the test. In the name. You're searching the name of the tests for that filter. Okay. And it, it's, it's not, it's, luckily it's not uh, case sensitive because I typed Fibonacci and it auto-corrected to a capital F and it still worked. Okay. Cool. And okay, so it's also searching the name of the module then, if that worked for you. So I type the word argument because I want to see the two tests in the two different modules called invalid arguments through errors. Yeah, it could have been looking anywhere to find Fibonacci, right? Okay, but it's it's only looking in the test in the text of things we've given names in QUnit. It's not looking in your code. It's looking in the names you've given QUnit things. Oh, so Q, Q okay. test and QUnit.module. So it's looking in the uh, in the error uh, description. It's in too? the metadata, basically. It's looking in the in the strings that you've told. Yeah, strings. There you go. Okay. 
Gotcha. That's cool. Okay. And then the last thing we have is this group of three checkboxes. First one is pretty self-explanatory. Hide past tests. This is great if you have a really big code base and you know that there's 20 fails out of a thousand or something and you mm-hmm. don't want all the clutter of having to scroll. Hide past test. Past tests vanish and all that's left is your errors. Now, check for globals is interesting. So I said to you that part of the aim of the exercise with unit testing is that you should no unit test should have an effect on another unit test and in javascript that means you should not mess with the global scope what that really means in javascript land so before your test runs and after your test runs the global scope should be unchanged so check for globals does that it takes a snapshot of the global scope runs your test takes a snapshot of the global scope and sees if they are the same if they are the same no error is thrown. If they are not the same, then the test that made a change, the test that leaked, the test that was not atomic, will be marked in red oh. with a message telling you what variable in the global scope you mucked with. Oh, that's a really important test. It is. However, it's very CPU intensive. Now, it won't do any harm on a test suite this small. So it's off by default because you just want to do it every now and then. Okay. And you know you're going to thrash your poor CPU. And then huh. you leave it back off again. Okay. Now, how might you accidentally bugger up the, na- the global namespace? The answer is declare a variable inside one of your tests without the word var. If you forget to use the word var, you're working in the global scope. Oh. So you can test and, that for and yourself. And change it. Pick, yeah, so just any, pick a test, any test, and just put a line at the end of it saying x equals 4. No var, just x equals 4 semicolon. Okay, let's see if I know where to put the x. Equals four semicolon. Yeah, so inside any of your tests. Okay. And then refresh the page and then click that check for global. Oh, look at that. It got all angry about that. And it tells you it was X that was wrong. Uh, No, it looks like I messed something else up. Give me an example of where it's valid to put that. Uh, Okay, so you're using my finished final version from this file? Okay, then I can give you a line number. Okay. Bear with me. Mm Mm-hmm. Stick it in between the current. Oh, let me pick an easy one. Ah, why don't I just look in, in my code editor instead of trying to scroll through my blog? How about post? in qunit.test? The very top in the namespace exists. Sure, stick it in there. Yeah, inside namespace exists. So after assert OK, and I'm going to change assert expect to three? No. No, 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 no you're not just, making another assertion. Just, yes, yeah, so the last four. line inside that function, x equals four. Okay. And now. Run, and I didn't get any errors. Oh, I didn't hit check for globals. Okay, so now barfed all introduce global variables x. There you go. So it tells you that you messed with the global namespace, which you shouldn't do in in unit testing. So there should be atomic, and it tells you where in the global space you made a mess. Yeah, it also got mad because it wanted two assertions and it got three. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, because that check globals is now also an assertion, I guess, because yeah. that now did something. Yeah, but I should... So, so if I you should... delete that line and then run again with the with that same checkbox checked, it'll be perfectly happy with you. Nope, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to change the, the yeah. ser- assertions to three first. Oh, it's still mad uh, about that. It's still going to be mad because that's not a, that's a sort of a pseudo assertion because you yeah. have check globals. But it's not yelling me about the global anymore. It's still yelling me about assertions. 
but it's not yelling at me about the global okay, now change. Okay, fix the assertions, and then it will get as far as yelling about the global change. No, I did. I, I changed assert expect to three, but left the Okay, but that's not fixing it. You've only typed two asserts. Okay. Here. All right. I'll just get rid of it. But but it's interesting. It didn't give the same global error. That's kind of weird. It is. But yeah, it's an interesting thing you were doing there. It's not yeah. quite expected. Okay, it's all happy now. Okay, what's okay. this third one? That's try catch. Ooh, I still don't get that. Okay, so in its normal run of events, um, as it's running your test, a queue unit wraps your test in a try block so that if your test throws an exception, sorry, throws an error, it doesn't stop the running of the test suite. It will continue past failing test. If you put no try catch, it will just die the first time something goes wrong. So the test will just stop and there'll be a big red thing marked where it, st- where it stopped. So if you just want to fix one error at a time, that's not a bad way to do it. It'll oh, run so it's a way to fake. step through, essentially? Essentially, you're going to be stepping through. As soon as you meet a fail of any kind, it will stop going any further and tell you about that fail. Okay. So it's potentially useful. Um, I prefer to just hide past tests. Hide past it? Uh... Yeah, so the very first checkbox we looked at. It's oh, okay. easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No try catch. Unless you like seeing and, a lot of green. Exactly. So that is it. That is the sum total of what uh, that is. Basically, we are now using a proper real world test suite to test our admittedly rather basic little API. You know, I but feel we've done it in the real world. Yeah, I feel a little bit good and uh, unfortunate for everybody else, but that I was able to do this a much harder way with Jill where we had to write our little errors thing, say, put big, big, bold, you know, fails next to it and happy faces and stuff. And to have this be it be so well structured, I, I really like this. Uh, but it's sort of like I learned how to add by hand and now I'm allowed to use a calculator. I like yes, it. Exactly. You, you built your own wheel and now someone's given you like a Pirelli tire. Like, Ooh, <laughs> these get nice, these wheel things. <laughs> Look at him and all about cars now. Um so okay. I, I'm thinking, looking forward, you might not okay. want to write all the tests for us. You might want to make us write tests, too. I may do. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. But I certainly need to write some tests. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but say, okay, I've given you the ones that check to see if it's not a number, if it's uh, an invalid date, but... Uh, you know, you haven't really checked this more subtle one, figure this one out or, or give us the easy ones and you do the hard ones <laughs> like that. Yeah. I'll have to figure out the nicest way to, to divvy that up. I have to have a think about that, but yeah, I, I see your point indeed. Yeah. Cause we and I have a challenge to test too. Uh-oh. I have a challenge for you. Uh-oh. Now you don't have to do it all. I did it all because that way I got lots of practice with Q unit, but I would like you to write a test suite for all or part of our suite of date and time prototypes. I would suggest me? that the most bite-sized chunk is pbs.time. Okay. That's actually okay. pbs.date is very messy because of February. February <laughs> really introduces a lot of tests. February makes it about twice as annoying as pbs.time. Uh, combined with obviously leap years, which need a lot of tests to make sure you're doing those correctly, because if it's a century and not a century, leap years are complicated. <laughs> so pbs.date is definitely a bigger one to bite off and you can't really usefully test pbs.date time until you make sure that date and time are correct. So I would suggest if you want a small assignment, do pbs.time. I will give you in the next installment my full test suite for all three of them. Wow. 
took me a while. But as I say, I was doing it anyway to make sure I was familiar enough with QUnit to talk about it. So I figured that was a good assignment. And it's big, right? My full test suite is big. Sounds like you sort of had fun with this. I did have fun with it, right? I mean, it, it was it was interesting to because I had to learn to, to do date time well. I had to learn some things, and it'll be fun next week to talk through my full test suite because I also intentionally in my solution did some cool things, which are not you can do it without cool things. You can do what we know now, but I discovered some nice ways to take shortcuts, not shortcuts, optimizations. Anyway, we'll talk about it next time. But basically, I now have a full test suite for PBS date, PBS time, and PBS date time. That's got to feel good. It does. It also means that anyone who's been playing along, who's never fallen back to using my, my samples as the starting point for the next assignment, that's going to be really interesting during your fully finalized oh. point test suite. I don't think I want to see that. <laughs> Anything I've written. <laughs> and what I would expect is a whole bunch of fails because there are times where my English wasn't precise enough. But my test suite is precise because test suite isn't fuzzy. The test suite is exact. And so that'll be interesting to see. And then you can, you know, people can either choose to tweak the test suite or choose to tweak, tweak their code. to get it to pass. Okay. Anyway, so that's where we are. So next time we're still not going parallel. Um, next time we're still doing more of this because what we haven't looked at yet is testing code like, say, our functions for making links have rel- uh, the... Uh, Ah, what's the relic was no ref or whatever that uh, thing no was. opener no opener thank you relic was no opener we wrote some javascript code to do that well we should be able to test that but to test that we need to be able to figure out how to use qunit to test jquery code now qunit was written by the jquery people so of course it's possible yeah yeah we just haven't looked at it yet so that's what's on the menu for next time Sounds like fun. All right, Bart, this was awesome. This was even more fun than I thought. I, I was a little worried I'd be going, well, that's not the way Jill taught me. But it has enough of the same kind of structure that I'm uh, that it makes me happy and more structure. And, and that GUI is just beautiful. This is really I'm fun. I'm so happy I found QUnit because initially I was only finding command line tools and they were not making me smile. They were, yeah. fun- they, they were technically correct. But they were not making me smile. And then I found QUnit and it just made me beam from ear to ear. So I got really excited. And Let so me guess, you're using it at work it. now, aren't you? I will be in all my JavaScript stuff. At the moment, I'm doing mostly Perl and work. So I'm using uh, Perl stuff, Perl test, TDD and Perl, which obviously uses completely different languages. Yeah. Though it does have a cool command line tool called Prove, which <laughs> I just find fun. Prove my code. But anyway. <laughs> I like it. All right. This is, this is awesome, Bart. I'm super excited. Excellent. Okay. Talk soon, and until next time, happy computing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon, so if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that, and it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback, so please send me email at allison at podfeet.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfeet.com slash Facebook and our community at podfeet.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. <laughs> <laughs>